Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. My guest on this episode is a former environmental engineering classmate of mine, Zach Aquardi. Zach has an impressive background. He's a researcher, writer, editor, and strategist dedicated to building sustainable, inclusive communities through institutional reform and policy change. He started his career at Gotham 360, an energy consultancy in New York City, before getting his master's in policy and technology. He consulted for the World Bank on sustainability indicators and performance tracking and conducted research for Project Drawdown. Then he focused in on sustainable and inclusive transportation at the Transit Center. He now works for the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, advising cities on transportation policy and project implementation as part of the American Cities Climate Challenge. We recorded this episode a few months ago, and listening back to it now, I realize I missed the opportunity to dig in and discuss the topic of racial equity. While Zach and others in the sustainability community and some of my colleagues here at Stephen Winter Associates have been embedded in a discussion about equity and social justice for their entire careers, I personally haven't focused on the connection between my work as it relates to equity inclusion. But in light of current nationwide discussions and our own internal discussions on racial and social justice and bias, I don't wanna gloss over the link between transportation and equity. Since I didn't explore the connection in the episode, I wanted to highlight some of Zach's work at the Transit Center in this intro. Zach is the author of a 2018 report called Inclusive Transit, which was one of the first national policy reports to summarize and highlight specific opportunities for local transportation agencies to plan and set policies designed to advance racial equity in the U.S. cities. I wanted to highlight the intro of this report, which says, Access to high-quality public transportation can make cities more inclusive by increasing mobility and opportunity, particularly for people with low incomes and people of color. The role of a community is essential to fair and just transportation planning and decision-making processes. This can lead to prioritizing transportation investments that better enable people to meet their day-to-day needs, getting to work, school, the grocery store, the doctor's office, and social and leisure activities. Allowing people to meet these needs creates long-term economic opportunities and helps them escape poverty. In addition to transit's well-documented environmental and economic benefits, public transportation can be a powerful tool to advance racial equity and social justice in American cities. We'll link to the full report in the show notes, and as it turns out, Transit Center has its own podcast called High Frequency. We'll link to that in the notes as well. Now turn to jump into my discussion with Zach, which focuses more on the sustainability aspects of his work on transportation. Yeah, so uh, transportation is, I think, I think has a a history of being a little bit neglected uh, among people who care about climate change and energy use. And I think that's true for a few different reasons. I think, uh, I think it's, it's, it's complicated. Transportation energy use is really complicated, but I think it's really it's really important, and it's a, it's a big opportunity to uh, to reduce energy use, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a way that really supports a lot of other societally important goals and priorities. So, 
Um, so I'd say, first of all, streets in, especially in kind of major cities, are some of the most important public space that, that we have. Um, they represent the, the vast majority of public space, including parks and, uh, and other things that we kind of more traditionally think about as public space. Um, and uh, yet for, for years, for probably the past you know, five, six, seven decades, we've been designing streets f with about one singular goal in mind, which is prioritizing moving cars very quickly. Uh, and that's very different. That, that's resulted in streets that look very different than they would if we designed streets to prioritize uh, making streets and making cities nice places for people to live. The implication is also that energy use is really high, that people drive a lot more than they otherwise would. Um, but there are a bunch of other problems that this creates. So one is that uh, more than 40,000 people die each year in the US uh, in car crashes. Um, and that includes people who are driving, and that also includes people who are walking or biking. Uh, this is a, an enormous public health crisis, and, and yet it's become normalized as this this thing that we just uh, that we just think about as kind of an acceptable cost of of creating a, a society that really relies on cars. But this isn't just a problem because people uh, are unsafe. It's also a problem because owning a car is really expensive and, and we've made car ownership kind of a necessary precondition to having economic opportunity, having the opportunity to get a job that, that pays well, where you have a reasonable commute, where you can afford to live in a place um, where you have a commute that you know, it's possible to do every day and that you can afford to do every day. So, you know, there's this real strong connection between transportation access and housing affordability. Um, and in cities uh, today, it's really, it's really hard to um, both afford a, a great place to live for you and for your family um, and to be able to have a, a commute that doesn't require uh, a car which can cost, you know, on average something like $10,000 a year. And if you're a family that's living um, at or anywhere close to the poverty line, that is a huge percentage of your income. Yeah, great. Those are all excellent points. And I think you've already taken us to kind of a much bigger perspective. I think a lot of times when when I hear things talked, uh, when I hear transportation discussed kind of from a sustainability perspective, they're, we're talking about you know, electric vehicles to, for the most part, um, or, or at least I guess that's, that's sort of the buzz thing in, in general space, not necessarily within the industry, but, um, looking at what, how you can make an impact on the entire community from more of a um, urban planning perspective, I guess is your take on it, an urban planning perspective of, uh, integrating transportation with the community, um, both on the social justice side and on the efficiency side. Right, exactly. And I, and I think that, you know, I, I frame it that way because I think that those really are, you know, the, the most urgent problems in, that cities are facing that, that we need to, um, to be working on. Um, but, you know, I've, I obviously I come to this work from a perspective of reducing energy use, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and 
you know, I, I deeply believe that, that that is also urgent, even though it's not something that cities themselves feel every day. Cities are at the forefront uh, of reducing energy use, reducing emissions. Um, so it's also, I think, important to, to say that the transportation as of, I think, 2017 is the sector of the U.S. economy that represents the biggest percentage of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I think it's 29% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions from transportation, most of that coming from driving, from personal car use. Um, this obviously means that that's a huge part of the climate story in the U.S. It also um, is a huge public health concern. One thing that's been been really stark the last few days in LA since the state issued the safer at home uh, directive is how clear the air is just from people driving less. Um, and it. Uh, wow, yeah, and you, you definitely have a different perspective of it um, in, in LA, or, or I guess a very uh, maybe an, an exacerbated uh, perspective of it. Then. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, the air, air quality and, and smog here is, uh, is, is, is famous or, or infamous, maybe. Um, and, and the difference is so stark. And obviously, you know, it, we don't want to, like, turn, turn off driving in L.A. overnight because, again, that would mean that people couldn't get to their job, people couldn't get to, to see their friends, couldn't get to their school, etc. Um, but we need to provide viable, opportuni not viable alternatives for people where people feel safe, people feel that it's, it's convenient enough to walk, to bike, to take public transit to the things, uh, the places, and the, the people that they, that, they want to, um, that they want to be seeing. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think giving those kind of multiple layers of importance to the issue, there's sort of the immediacy of, of things like smog and health in, in urban centers. And then there's obviously the, the global impact of, of climate change um, from greenhouse gas emissions over time. So thinking about multiple scales under which this transportation issue is incredibly important. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I guess the last thing... The last thing I'll say, you know, this is transportation is an issue where all of these things intersect and they all kind of point in the same direction, which is that it's really important to invest in in transportation options besides driving alone to make those options possible to align kind of land use and housing policies um, with that goal as well. And, you know, I, I mentioned that transportation has become the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. That's happening for two reasons. One is that that the in, in building energy use, we've actually done a reasonably good job so far at starting to kind of bend the curve uh, and start to shift the trajectory of uh, of the growth in energy use and the carbon intensity of energy use um, in the electricity sector and, and otherwise. Obviously, we have a tremendous amount more work to do. But in transportation, we're going the exact opposite direction. People are driving more and more over time and um, setting aside electric vehicles and electrification um, for a moment, you know, the, the amount that we're driving continuing to increase 
is it's a really hard problem to solve because the transportation system is so so complex and so there's a lot more work to be done before we're ready to um to really start shifting that trajectory great and that's an excellent point and i think sometimes i have a bit of a skewed view hearing all of the um discussion in new york city where buildings are 70% of the greenhouse gas emissions. Taking a wider view across the entire country is really important when we try to say, you know, what what across the country and what globally do we need to be thinking about and looking at? And, and buildings are certainly a much smaller percentage um, overall across well, the country. I, I should say, and somebody, one of, at least one or one or more of your listeners would call me out on this. I, I'll say, uh, transportation is only the biggest sector if you define commercial and residential buildings as separate sectors. If you combine them together, they're still bigger than transportation. So uh, for, for your audience, I should definitely be clear about that. The, the reason that transportation energy use in New York is so small is because the subway exists and because the New York City bus system exists and because collectively people take uh, you know, close to when there's not a coronavirus epidemic, there you know there are um, <laughs> right. eight and a half million trips taken on the the New York City transit system every day between the bus and the subway. So, um, th- you know that that's the scale of public transit use in New York is the thing which makes it necessary to focus on buildings in New York because transportation is already on this, you know, dramatically more sustainable trajectory than in um, any other uh, U.S. city. We know it's a big deal now. Our listeners are convinced. Um, you you make a good point on on all of the levels of concern. What are what's something a city can do about it? And um, I, I'm not sure if it's best to take the perspective of an existing city like LA that has a lot of driving, or a perspective of if you're building a new kind of town center or city center. Um, can you speak to kind of what are the maybe top three things that you should consider um, designing? We're pushing yeah, us. yeah. It, it, it's it, I gave this a little bit of thought before the, before this conversation. I I think there's my first answer is kind of a, a cop out answer, which is that it's not just one thing. It's not just three things. It really is about focusing on how we design both streets and our built environment to support people not. Not having to drive everywhere. Um, it's also about electric vehicles, so I don't want to. I don't want to minimize that. But I, it's also electric vehicles are also less of my expertise, so I, I have less intelligent uh, things to say about them. Um, <laughs> so it, it's really kind of a making that um, making that kind of jump from the kind of planning, the kind of design, the kind of policy making that we have done for a long time into kind of systematically prioritizing investments that help people make the choice to walk, bike, take transit, etc. But I will also provide a real answer to your question. And I'm going to focus the focus (laughs) the kind of three examples um, on things that that interact with the built environment. Um, So 
And I think just to point out, as you were saying that, um, we, we had a universal design episode and we talked, we alluded to this a little bit and our, our building codes are going towards a more performance based metric. Um, I think we talked about universal design as, as like being a, a performance based code. Like, uh, I think this again is a, is more of a performance based mandate. What, what you're, what you're talking about, you know, can we design smartly, not specific prescriptive requirements necessarily, although we can get into those, but can we design in a smart way that encourages the kind of behavior that we're looking for? Absolutely. And there are actually some good, there are some good examples um, in, in a kind of a growing list of examples in cities around the country who are taking kind of a uh, performance, performance-driven approach to looking at transportation uh, transportation behaviors in the built environment. So, I, th- I think that's a good segue into these into these three policies and and uh, that um, that connect transportation to to the built environment. So, one is one is looking at kind of the de- development review process. So for uh, for a new building or like a substantial renovation for a building thinking about how we in uh in in evaluating kind of a development proposal look at what the transportation impacts of a project a project are and historically that's that's done by looking just at what is the adverse impact to traffic um so literally how how fast do cars move on the adjacent streets to to a new development project um and that turns out, without going into all of the the details, that turns out to be like the exact opposite of measuring whether a project supports kind of sustainable, um, equitable transportation investments. It's just about moving cars more quickly. It's antithetical to safety goals. It's antithetical to um, greenhouse gas emissions reduction goals. Um, and what we actually want to do is ask in the development review process, is this new building, this new development, going to enable people to get to the building through a diversity of transportation options? Um, so that can mean like looking at kind of a menu of different things that a development can do, um, which include might include building less parking, providing amenities for people who walk and bike, making sure that there are like great there's great sidewalk infrastructure, not just on the development, but but maybe nearby. Um, and so that kind of development review process is a really important important lever. Um, a second one is looking at um, what you might call commuter benefits programs. So the building itself and how you construct it is one part, but then there's how do people use the building and how do you keep track of whether the employers or the other tenants in the building um, are actually achieving the kind of goals that are that are built into the development itself. So this would be things like making sure that employers are um, are providing employees not just with free parking or the opportunity to, to have free parking, but also um, kind of equivalent benefits that allow them to, or, or support them taking transit, riding bikes, um, walking, etc. So it, it 
this is solving a problem which is pretty common where an employer will offer free parking but actually not even offer a subsidized transit pass um, which might be uncommon in New York but is, is very com common in, uh, in cities around the country. And that just creates a bad incentive. Um, so it's basically saying, we, we, we support you as an employee if you drive, but, um, but if you're going to do something else, then you have to forego this, this benefit. And then the third one, the third one is, um, is related to the first, um, but, a little bit, but a little bit more broad, which is focused on, focused on parking specifically. And I think there are a variety of really important parking reforms that cities, um, that cities can undertake, but the most simple and the most, perhaps the most powerful is eliminating parking minimums in new development. So uh -oh. in, um, in a new development, most cities, well, the overwhelming majority of cities require some minimum amount of parking to be built. And um, that raises development costs, which in turn, you know, the average parking space costs tens of thousands of dollars to construct. So in a residential building, that means that you're adding tens of thousands of dollars to every unit's cost. So you're exacerbating housing affordability, but it also means, again, that you're providing a strong incentive for people to drive by just making it as easy as possible for them to do so. Um, and so, Eliminating those parking minimums is good for housing affordability, but it also makes it easier for developers to um, align good transportation incentives with the, the, the built environment. So you mentioned in the beginning uh, a little bit about getting involved in the American Cities Climate Change, uh, Climate Challenge, sorry, uh, project. What are the goals of that? And, and can you describe it a little bit and... Um, I think we'd love to hear if, if you're seeing a tangible impact or not from, from that. Yeah, yet. absolutely. So the American Cities Climate Challenge is a project spearheaded by Bloomberg Philanthropies and led on a day-to-day -day basis by my organization, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and another organization called Delivery Associates. So our two organizations co-lead this project whose goals are helping mayors and city governments uh, go further faster in achieving their Paris climate uh, uh, emissions reduction goals. So right, right now in this, in this moment in the US where federal leadership on climate is, is absent or, or in, in many cases going in the, the wrong direction, um, cities have really stepped up to the challenge and have, have taken on ambitious goals to, um, to kind of fill that void of federal leadership. And so cities who are participating in the American Cities Climate Challenge applied to the program and were awarded basically uh, a suite of different types of technical support. So from our, our two organizations that I've already mentioned, but also um, over a dozen additional kind of best-in-class national organizations who provide technical support and other subject matter expertise um, across the spectrum from land use, transportation, uh, policy um, and from uh, electric vehicles uh, kind of uh, many many different transportation 
many different forms of support for cities working on transportation, although we also um, have uh, a, a similar kind of package of support for cities working on reducing energy use in buildings um, and reducing the uh, carbon intensity of the, the electric grid. Um, Pretty, pretty, pretty comprehensive. Um, each city has, has identified about four kind of priority um, projects that are getting support on both the transportation side and the buildings side. Um, and so we work hand in hand with city staff um, on each of those projects across 25 cities. Um, to help them implement them. Um, we, the project started last year, runs through the end of this year. So it's kind of a two-year sprint to get as many of these projects implemented um, and uh, producing greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible. Wow, great. And what, um, what was something you've already made progress on, a specific example? I work with several cities. I'm actually going to give uh, an example from... Uh, from a city that I don't work with, but but where I grew up, which is which is Portland, Oregon, um, they came into the climate challenge uh, planning to implement a couple of um, kind of pilot bus only lanes. So they wanted to expand the the number of places in the city where um, where buses are kind of treated treated like royalty and like. Uh, uh, and where the, the capacity of the bus to move, you know, um, 40, 70, you know, lots of people at once in, in one vehicle um, to make sure that that, that that kind of efficiency is recognized by, by helping the buses move, move more quickly through traffic or kind of avoid traffic altogether. Um, so we were able to work with the, with the city of Portland to not just identify two or three places where where bus priority could be improved, but the city actually decided to increase their ambition where to the degree where they're now improving uh, they're they're now planning to implement bus priority um, treatments street treatments um, in I think twenty four locations throughout the city so they've really kind of upped the ante um, in how ambitious they're ready to be to really make sure that buses, which are the most in, most efficient way to move people on kind of scarce city street space, um, not just in a couple of places here and there in the city, but really through a comprehensive program. That's great. And so I, I assume that does the twofold. One, it makes traveling by car less attractive, but it also makes traveling by bus move uh, quicker and and. Um, make it more attractive. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, you know, it's it, it it's fair to fair to frame it that way because um, city street space is pretty scarce. You know, it's it's really hard when when you have you know forty feet of street space. Um, every foot that you use for one thing, you can't use for another. Um, and again, going back to the the very beginning of this conversation, we have for a long time allocated the overwhelming majority of our streets to the single purpose of moving single occupancy vehicles um, as fast as possible. So that means that everything else, including bus lanes and 
other kind of street design elements that help buses move quickly, but also including sidewalks, also including um, bike lanes that make it comfortable for people of all ages to ride a bike. Everything else um, in this kind of zero-sum game of allocating street space has um, has gotten the short end of the stick. So cities cities are working kind of uh, one one step at a, one street at a time. Um, to kind of reclaim some of that space and, and restore some some more balance to uh, to city streets. Great, and you talk, um, or I, I assume there's some uh, research behind how many people then start transferring to um, buses. If if you provide this space and the buses can move more efficiently, um, people are either convinced because they don't want to sit in their car stuck in more traffic, or they're convinced because the buses move quickly. But there, it, what kind of research has been done, or what are your recommendations based on, I guess? Um, yeah. I don't know if you know any of the specifics offhand, or um, or if you have, can point us to additional. Totally. Resources. So my my former employer, Transit Center, has done some really great research, kind of synthesizing what are the things about um, about a public transit system or about public transit service that make it possible and desirable for people to use them. Um, Many, many, uh, much more research has been done in the past by a variety of other um, institutions and and organizations, but I think Transit Center has has done a really nice synthesis. So what they find is that um, that people use public transit when it is fast, frequent, reliable, um, and walkable. So when you have a, a safe, comfortable walk to a bus or a train stop. Um, when you can w- walk to it and feel confident that there will be a bus or a train arriving uh, very soon. So you don't soon enough that you don't have to check a schedule beforehand. Um, that usually means at least every 15 minutes, but obviously the more frequent the service, the better. Um, and you want to be be confident that the that the bus or train is actually gonna gonna arrive on that timetable. So even if it's scheduled to come every ten minutes, if it's not reliable, if it's pretty common for uh, for there to be a gap of twenty minutes or more, then that's gonna make you less likely to use it. Um, and then of course, uh, in terms of speed, if if the bus is coming every three minutes but it moves at a snail's pace, then that's not going to do you much good either. So, so you're totally right. When you implement a bus lane, um, as an example, you actually solve um, f- for fast, frequent, and reliable. When there's a bus lane, it makes it really easy to run a lot of buses because they're not stuck in traffic. So they move faster, which means that you're actually getting more financial efficiency from every bus because the driver is covering more ground um, in in any given minute. Um, it also means that you can be more confident because traffic both slows things down but also introduces a lot of uncertainty in travel times. Um, you can be more confident about how long the um, the trip is going to take because... Um, without without a bunch of cars clogging up a lane, you just you you just it's just more predictable, um, and then 
there's no better enticement for a drive somebody who's driving who is stuck in traffic um, to start taking transit than seeing a bus whiz by um, at twice or, or three times the speed while they're waiting for waiting for the next light and so that makes a huge difference when people right, can absolutely. really see um, see that taking the bus is going to save them time um, and so that's definitely a, a place where we see a lot of uh, a lot of good healthy behavior change. One thing I wanted to circle back to on the, I'd asked about something that you've been working on. I'm curious to know with the American Cities uh, Climate Challenge, was there anything that you ran into that you were surprised that didn't go as well as you thought it would, that you thought it would go really easily or maybe the uptake would be easy and either the um, local mayor said that's a terrible idea or the people were resistant or it just took longer um, any kind of challenges like that? Yeah, I'd say there there's some challenges that you expect, and and some some that are surprising. I'd say with the the cities and the mayors that we're working with across these 25 cities, um, the the mayors tend to be really supportive, really game to try new things. Um, they want to lead. That's why they applied to be part of the program. Um, and so, you know, we've had really positive experiences. Um, working with city leaders um, to make this stuff happen. So that's been, uh, I think that that's always a source of, uh, of strength and, and, uh, uh, and optimism for, for me. Um, and you expect to get opposition from, um, from communities when you're doing really anything that threatens um, on-street parking, for example, which is a, a kind of the, the proverbial third rail of... Um, of urban street design, um, people feel deeply that they um, that they need to have ubiquitous free access to on-street parking, and that is something that they've been um, that they have been kind of conditioned to feel because again, that's that's how we've been designing streets for a long time, um, and. Um, I think one of the interesting challenges that cities are eager, eager to solve and that we, I think, have done some, um, some healthy thinking around is how to help a city agency implement a kind of project that they haven't done before for the first time. How to build capacity in a city agency um, that hasn't existed before and which you know we hope um, and which they hope they'll be able to, to leverage to continue doing good work. So I'll give a concrete example which is um, uh, which is building um, which is building kind of quick build uh, bus or or it could be a bike lane. Um, so there are kind of full-scale, what you would call a, a capital project on, on a street where you're pouring concrete, you're ripping up the asphalt, you're um, kind of totally tearing the street apart and rebuilding it from scratch. And those are super expensive projects. They take many years of planning and design and, and engineering. Um, and those, you know, those will be projects that cost millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars um, to, to plan and, and implement over their, their lifetime. 
So there's another way of doing projects which requires a lot lighter weight materials, much less expensive, doesn't require tearing the street apart, where you can make quick changes, you throw some paint onto the street to kind of demarcate different areas where different types of people can go. You see this in New York a lot. New York has been one of the pioneers of this approach, um, where um, in, in New York, paint that's kind of a tan uh, a tan color indicates that that's a place where people can walk. That's basically an extension of the sidewalk. Um, and where you might use kind of flexible posts to, um, to protect that space, or you might use planters or some other kind of big uh, immovable object. And designing a project like that um, gives a lot of traffic engineers heartburn because it kind of goes against a lot of what the um, what they've been taught um, over the course of their careers but um, but these kinds of projects at the same time have like very clearly demonstrated safety benefits and they allow cities to make changes um, at a much more rapid pace um, but it still requires a lot of learning and a lot of um, kind of experimentation for any given city to figure out how to do projects like this, which will ultimately allow them to um, transform and reimagine streets at a much faster pace. Um, and so that, that tends to be, that's like a, a, a kind of different kind of challenge than getting, um, getting city leadership or departmental leadership bought into these kinds of changes is really helping cities learn the skills and the, the kind of core competencies that are necessary to implement the kinds of projects we know we need at scale. And the program brings a resource. Um, I always think back to developing the energy code uh, in, in New York or, or, you know, just participating in the advisory committee. I didn't develop it, but the um, working, uh, looking at what other cities are implementing um, and not just staying within your own bubble to try to find solutions that have worked in the past is a really successful way. And so having you as the, not you specifically, but your team, of course, as the go-between to try to translate this information and how does or does it not apply to another area. Is there anything around that? Something that maybe worked in one city and you thought, this is a great idea, and then in another city it just fell flat? I think there are, I mean, there's some easy examples. Like there are some cities who are talking and about and who are actively working on implementing um, congestion pricing, which is a live conversation and, and a, a major project in New York, but also um, several other cities uh, around the country. And that's, you know, that's a policy solution that um, that really wouldn't be appropriate or wouldn't be like a priority in um, in a smaller or medium-sized city where traffic congestion is like not um, not anywhere close to the top of the list of problems that cities face so there, there are things like that that are um, that are kind of obvious and then I guess there are there are less there are less obvious ones uh, I give an example of like land use, land use policy. So we work with a couple of cities on um, on land use policy reform in relation to our transportation work, and its land use policies are just so um, wrapped up in local history. Like 
how like what are building setback requirements and potentially minimum unit sizes and that's an area where um where you can't you really can't use like a a cookie cutter approach you have to look at like the specifics of what's there um what's in the existing zoning code um before you um, before you start to figure out what are the kind of specific policy change opportunities um, that'll help a city achieve its goals. Great, that's an awesome point. I wanna I wanna circle back to one other thing you said that I'm curious about. You mentioned the number of people that die per year in uh, car crashes. I'm curious if um, how that relates to like is there sort of a per capita, per rider mile uh, comparison to deaths by public transit? This is just out of my own curiosity. Uh, um, yes, there is. I don't, know the, I don't know the data offhand, but I do know the kind of top line conclusion, which is that, um, that public transit, places with more public transit have safer streets. Um, and... The more people who ride public transit, you know, the 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 safer the streets will be. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is um, that there's kind of like a virtuous cycle between having safe walking streets and having people ride ride, ride transit more. Um, and that's I think going back to your earlier question about what gets people to ride transit. Um, that's like it's kind of a chicken egg thing like you need safe streets in order to get people to ride transit and the more people who ride transit the more safer streets are going to be there are a couple of reasons that that uh, um, why there are a couple other reasons why that's the case so one is that um, the 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 core of the transit workforce is the people who actually drive um, buses and and who drive trains those are those people are working one of the hardest highest stress jobs um, in in the country, there the people have done studies on that, looking at job stress and and driving a bus is is as you might imagine when you start thinking about it um, is deeply stressful. You're you're in traffic. You're driving this huge vehicle. You've got people boarding the bus who are who are paying you, and you're supposed to um, like give them a ticket. And you have all this all of these things going on. People are asking you questions. They want to know where to get off the bus. Um, Bus drivers play this really, really crucial um, role, which is both customer service, but also making sure that everyone stays safe. Which is all to say that in order to be a bus driver, you have to be like a very well-trained professional. Like your whole job is being a, a, a really good driver in a really stressful situation. Um, that's very different from, you know, the licensing and training process that the average driver gets, which is like, you might go to driver's ed or you might not. And you take a driver's test in one state, which you never have to retake in any other state. So, and, t and state testing requirements vary, um, as do licensing requirements. And so who knows how much training anyone has and even the most stringent licensing requirements for a driver's license in the U.S. are pretty lax. There's almost zero retesting at any point. So, which is all to say that like the average driver in the U.S. is probably a pretty bad driver, um, and the average bus driver is going to be a really excellent driver. Um, and so that that pays a lot of benefits in terms of of how safe people are going to be um, walking or driving on the street. 
Great. Those are all good points. Um, yeah. Thanks for, for all your thoughtful answers. We, we like to end a little bit, um, in a longer look ahead direction. So looking towards the future, uh, what do you think we're going to be talking about when we have you back on the podcast in five years? In five years, there will be a new list of American cities who have really kind of rewritten the rule book for how urban transportation systems look. Um, they will have taken systematic approaches to prioritizing kind of more human transportation options, enabling people to walk and bike in ways that, that allow them to feel safe, creating significant new investments in public transit that make public transit, you know, the, the, the best option for, um, for longer trips in, in urban centers. Um, and they've rethought the built environment as we talked about in the context of, of parking, in the context of, uh, of, of land use, housing affordability, more density, to create built environments and create the conditions for healthy built environments that allow people to make healthier, more equitable, more sustainable transportation choices. And we'll have... Wow, so really setting the bar low for yes. the future <laughs> for the future of uh, the industry it's, there. It's a high bar. Um, that's it awesome. It should be. Yeah. And, uh, and if, if uh, any of you mayors out there of cities that aren't involved in the challenge yet are getting excited hearing, uh, hearing Zach talk about the future of buildings, um, then now's the time to get started if you want your city to look like that that's in right. a couple of the, years. The time to start is, is yesterday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, well, that's awesome, Zach. Thank you so much for coming and being on the podcast. Thanks so much really for having me. It. It's a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Buildings and Beyond. To learn more about transportation and inclusive cities, check out our show notes at swinter.com slash podcasts. Buildings and Beyond is brought to you by Stephen Winter Associates. We believe our world is not as sustainable, healthy, safe, equitable, or inclusive as it needs to be. We continually strive to develop and implement innovative solutions to improve the built environment. If you want to join us in our mission, visit swinter.com careers. A big shout out to our production team, Jade Alvarez, Dylan Martello, Alex Mirabile, and Heather Breslin, as well as my co-host, Rob Aldridge. We thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.